0: We had two people kind of go off into a corner for a little while, for like a month, and work on sort of a prototype of what this would look like, this merged project would look like. And so we said, oh, well, if it only took them, like, they, that's like 80% of the way there, right? Should have been more cognizant of sort of the risk that we had taken on. We course corrected on that, I think in an interesting way, because what we really had to deal with was like the reputational risk of Well, you said that you were going to do X, and now you're kind of backing out on that. My name is Austin Parker. I'm head of developer relations at Lightstep.
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host Noah Labhart, and today how Austin Parker heads up Developer Relations for the cloud-native platform Lightstep. All this and more on Code Story. Austin Parker started out at a young age with computers, writing programs in BASIC and hanging out on bulletin boards. Prior to his tech career, he held many other jobs as a short-order cook, waiting tables, and taking tickets at the theater. When he stepped into the industry, he started out in test automation, followed up by getting involved in open source communities, which is how he got into developer relations. What he likes about this arena is that DevRail is taking your company's story of product and making it harmonize with what everyone else is seeing in the market. He has a young family, which occupies most of his time, but he likes to do photography, tinkering with electronics and building model aircrafts. Back in the day, he experienced the glory days of Radio Shack, where you could grab electronic components on a whim. Austin has been in his current company for four years, right after Stealth Mode ended. He has helped enable the company to support developers through their innovative tech stack built by industry experts, which is the cloud-native reliability platform. This is Austin's creation story of LightStep,
0: so I've been with the company not since the very beginning, but I've been with them for a while. This is my fourth year there. Um, I, I came in right when they were really starting to pick up, right a few months after we had gone from like a stealth startup to, you know, we had a product out there. And originally that was, product was called uh, XPM, and if you're familiar with monitoring or observability tools, maybe you've heard of application performance monitoring or APM. And originally that's what lightstep made it made a epm tool but really it was more than what people uh, were used to at the time we had a lot of innovation you know we had a very innovative technology stack that was built by people who had solved these sort of problems of you know monitoring application performance in production uh, at google and when you're talking about solving these sort of problems at Google, you know, you're solving them on a very different scale than pretty much anyone else in the world is, because Google is one of the few, you know, truly planet-scale companies Um, when some, you know, Google search, if you think about it, when was the last time you used Google, when was the last time you typed in google.com and it didn't work? I would suggest for most people, the answer is probably never. And it's a testament not only to the how reliable and how rigorous they build that software, but it's also a testament to the observability they have of that software. They have designed, you know, these incredibly powerful um, internal tools to make it possible for people to see, you know, for engineers there to see like what's going on in production at all times on this piece of software that's accessed millions and millions of times. You know not just millions of times a day but like in sometimes millions of times a second right on that kind of planet-wide scale so that was what lights was founded to do is to bring that same level of technology and make it accessible to sort of your average everyday developer one way that we did this is through um, Really investing in open source, and that's kind of where I came into the picture more. Is we have this, we helped found a project called Open Tracing, which was a standard to get the sort of telemetry data you need for that visibility into your system to, to make that into a standard that everyone could kind of adopt. Because before, if you wanted to get that kind of data, you would have to, you were very tied in to like one specific vendor. Um, you w- didn't have a lot of flexibility. So if you using you know I'll just say some names right like Datadog you know Datadog had an agent that you would install and if there was something Datadog did that you didn't like well you were kind of stuck with them because that's who that their software is what generated all this telemetry. Maybe they did something to their pricing you didn't like or maybe there was something you're using they didn't support well you could go ask them like hey can you support X Y or Z and they would be like well we'll put it on a roadmap But by taking all of the power kind of around who gets, you know, what generates the telemetry, where, where does it come from, and putting it in the hands of these proprietary vendors, two things happened. One is that, like I said, it locked you in as a consumer. If you were trying to use this to understand what's going on in your system, you were stuck. Two, it meant that the people that were, you know, even like five, six years ago, right, like we saw this. We were in the middle, and we're still in the middle of this movement towards really commodified um, software, where we're not having—you know—you don't have to go out and write all the pieces to your, you know, platform anymore. You don't have to figure out how to orchestrate deploying and restarting, you know, containers because Kubernetes does that for you. You don't need to write your own web server. There's a billion different things for that. You don't need to write your own, well, really anything. There's this huge variety of open source software out. there and all that open source software needs to also emit telemetry. But they were kind of stuck in the same quandary that most people were, like consumers of these observability products, these monitoring products. Like, they couldn't just say, like, oh, well, you can only use our stuff with this vendor or that vendor. So what really we needed to have happen was to have a standard that everyone could agree on, both of the vendors and sort of the authors of the third-party software and have everyone say, "Okay, well, we will use this form. You know, we will use this API to create our stuff, and then everyone can just support that API." And that way, you don't have to worry about like which vendor are using or which vendor should you support. There will just be a standard. What that worked out pretty well, um, I would say. But we started to see a couple of. Not concerning things, but there was a confusion in the market, right? Because what did what did it mean to support Open Tracing? Um, there were other stand competing standards too. There was something called Open Census, which was su- supported and developed by Google primarily. And we would have you know authors of frameworks or libraries come up and say like, well, I want to support you know I want to support one of these, but which one is going to win, right? Because you have a standards battle and. In a standards battle, the smartest thing usually to do is kind of just to sit back and say uh, I'm, I'm going to wait and see what hashes out because I don't want to spend a bunch of time on something that I might have to change later, right? The result of all of this was actually something very unheard of, I think, in the open source world, which is that we all kind of sat down like adults and said, you know what, you're right, it's silly that there's two standards and we decided to make one standard, and we call it Open Telemetry.
1: Tell me about the first product, the first MVP. How long did it take to build for the company, and, and, and what was used to bring it to life?
0: So the first MVP of LightStep was actually pretty close to what it wound up, like in spirit at least, was very close to what it wound up being. The, the big lessons that I've kind of taken away from, like, early stage LightStep is, you know, the technology, the programming language, all that is, is somewhat interesting to certain people, but really what has made the company successful and made the product successful was, like, two things. One, having people that had sort of the expertise in building this before, so we were creating something that was pretty new. We were taking this technology that was sort of designed to be world you know, world-spanning, like global scale, right? And saying like, okay, how do we make this accessible to everyone else, right? So you need people that actually understand the big picture system. And so we had a lot of people that had worked on these, you know, kind of at the jump, right? Like the company founder was, was literally the guy that wrote the paper about this at Google that they put in, you know, he wrote the book on it in more, more than one way. So you need people to understand the big picture and understand how to actually deliver um, the sort of project at scale. But you also need the ability to have like a small core team that is capable of talking to, you know, your customers and understanding like, okay, here's this big thing, what is the small part you need? And so, what you've seen, and this isn't just in Lightstep, but also with projects like Open Telemetry that we're really involved in, is we st- we took really the brightest people in the room, you know, because there's really a pretty small group of people that I think really understand observability, and we got all of them together, and we've said, well, what do you actually need, right? What is not how are we going to solve all these problems forever, but how are we going to solve next problem how are we going to shorten the time to value right how are we going to i think both with open telemetry and lightstep itself the real question we've always been asking is how do we make this more essential to you how do we um, kind of cut down that loop of you install it to you actually get value out of it one good example in lightstep is we've always focused really on uh, having things be up to date and that maybe sounds kind of silly but if you think about it, if there's a you know, maybe a, a good example is if there's a fire in your building, when do you want to know about the fire? Most people would say, I want to know about it right now you know, or as, as, right, as soon as it happens, as soon as there's smoke like that's when you send me the fire alarm but traditional kind of monitoring systems are very delayed um, if you're looking at data from Amazon, right, like if you're using AWS, there could be like a five or 10 minute lag on data you're receiving about like, what's going on in my instances, especially when you have like a lot of them. And at some point, you have to start asking yourself like, well, is the lack of data, like, is that indicate a problem on their side or on my side, right? Like you could have people, you could have customers that are trying to hit your website or trying to use your product or whatever, and it's not working, and you have no clue, because the data that tells you that there's a problem is, you know, backed up somewhere or delayed. So one of the things we focused on, uh, both early on at Lightstep and also with Open Telemetry, is really making it as little as possible between like something happens and then you see the result of something happening. So getting it down to like, hey, if a thing occurred, then you know about it within 15 seconds um, for the Lightstep side of it. With Open Telemetry you know, that's this big multi-vendor project with a lot of different stakeholders, it's all open source, you know, that becomes more of a question of like, okay, how do you take all these different moving parts and structure them in a way where you're not having like one vendor or two vendors kind of, you know, butting heads about like, well, we need this thing now for our product, they need this, you know, how do you prioritize all that? I think what we've done there is we've tried to keep people really focused on like, well, what's the next step, you know, don't, don't sit here and think about all the stuff we could be doing. Let's look at what's on our plate, right? So right now, the past nine months or so, we've been working on metrics and open telemetry with all of our partners and everyone in the community there, helping drive that effort forward. And. It's really been about prioritization. It's been about taking and saying, well, what do we actually need for everyone to use this? What's the minimal set of features and you know specifications that need to be done? And someone comes up and says, oh, but what about this, what about this, what about this? You know, it's about making sure that everyone knows, look, just because we're not gonna do it today doesn't mean we're not gonna do it ever. Get that put on a backlog, make sure there's a really good sort of uh, project and product management. I think one thing that people maybe miss a lot of times is that so much of these big open source projects are really, there's, they're a lot like building a product, right? They're a lot like building a, a you know, it's, it's like running a startup, but you can't actually control what anyone does. And I think the lessons are the same. You need to be agile, yeah, you need to be nimble, yeah, but you also need to be really organized and you need to have a really strong vision and be able to communicate that vision really well to all these interested parties. And so that is, I think, one of the reasons we've been successful with open telemetry is because we were successful with LightStep.
1: From that point, right, from the MVP point, right, how did you progress the product? How did you and the team progress the product and mature it? And I think just to give, to put that kind of in a box, that question, I'm curious about how you guys go about building your roadmap and, you know, how do you decide, okay, this is the next most important thing to build.
0: You have to have a sort of really laser focus on like what is going to, not what is going to close a deal, right? Like I, I want to say, you know, it's, it's very easy to get caught up, especially when you're a startup, you know, on like what's going to actually close that next deal and make sure you get revenue and all that. And it's important. Yes. But it needs to be done by taking the vision you have, like whatever the core story of your product is, whatever the story you're trying to tell the world is keeping that top of mind while you're really relentlessly doing feedback sessions and sort of getting that feedback from your customers from your users really really listening to it really taking it to heart and asking yourself like okay like does this comport with the vision right because one thing that's very dangerous and i've seen this at other companies uh, that i've worked for is getting like it's very easy to sit there and feel like this constant shifting of focus is agility but it most often, like looks, but buff- like it can feel like you're being agile because you're being responsive, right? You can say like, "Oh, I've got you know, we're we have all these different requests, and so we're going to try to do as many of them as possible, and we're going to you know, it's like, ah, oh, we'll we'll pay down the tech debt later." But internally, to sort of engineers and other people, you know, if you're trying to do make everyone happy, it just feels like a lack of focus, and it is a lack of focus, and I think that. Has a lot of ripple effects, like outside of engineering, outside of um, into really every part of the business. Because you know, sales doesn't really know what how to describe what it is. Because it's like, ah, we're trying to do everything. Uh, there's not there's no focus. Marketing doesn't know how to go out and market uh, because you know you're trying to do you're trying to be all things to all people, right? So, what we've kind of kept in mind on both projects, I think, is what is the actual vision of this, right? For Lightstep, it is very simple. We are going to make it easier to understand what changed in your system. You have a complex system; you need to know what changed. Everything flows to that. So when we go out and we're doing feedback, it's around like, okay, well, here's kind of this core mission, this core part of the you know, core value proposition. Uh, how does this request fit into that? For Open Telemetry, it's we want to make high-quality telemetry, a built-in feature of cloud-native software. So what does that mean? Okay, that means that we need to prioritize things that make it easy to integrate. We need to prioritize these sort of uh, table stakes, features, and signals. It means we need to make sure that it's architected in a way that's easy for third-party developers to come along and say, okay, I can integrate this with my existing telemetry stack. You know, it means a lot of things, and most of the things maybe aren't too interesting, like unless you're interested in this. But what I think is generally useful is saying is that alignment to vision and being able to have that be top of mind all the time. Um, and as I think that worked really well in both cases, right? Like if you just look at the numbers and you look at, you know, where we were, to where we've been. I I was actually just looking like. I I keep tabs on uh, OpenTelemetry, at least, through TweetDeck, and I just kind of, like, it used to be that my TweetDeck column for OpenTelemetry, like, would very rarely move, Um, and now, like, I'm adding pages and pages to it a day, because people have, because of that, like, singular vision and focus it's very easy for people to go out and they, and they get it and they're like, oh, well, I'm going to start using this and then I'm going to start talking about it because I I got some value out of it. Uh, I'm going to go and give a talk on this at QCon or you know on a podcast. And so I see these new voices popping up um, and those voices, they're reaching even more people and they're talking about like, hey, here's this open telemetry thing. It's great, you should try it. And I don't think we would have been able to get there and get to that kind of organic growth and advocacy for the project without that again that that focus.
1: Okay, so let's switch to team then. So how do you go about building your team as a as a company as, you know, and what did you look for or what do you look for in those people to indicate that they're the winning horses to join you?
0: When you're trying to like when you're hiring people obviously, you know, for for money, then it's there's expectations, right? Like, hey, you're going to do this work. I'm going to pay you um, to be or to be very, you know, underwhelming about it. But when you're trying to get people to join like open source projects, you're basically saying like, hey, come do this work. By the way, I'm not going to pay you. By the way, you're not going to get any money for it. And it's also significantly harder to get anything done because it's not like a company where you know there's a boss and you're getting told what to do, right? Like, there's not it's a completely different circumstance. So how do you actually attract good people to an open source project um, to, to do work for free? That is significantly more challenging. I think what, found, what worked for us was uh, a couple of things. One is that we started out with a very clear and explicit kind of vision for the uh, project, which I addressed. The second thing was when we got together, Uh, a few years ago, we sat down, we brought in like a third party mediator between these existing projects. And that mediator helped really define kind of rules of the road, what each side needed to get and give. Um, And that, you know, that helped really narrow, we're not narrow, but that really helped kind of focus people's thinking. But all of that became public record, you know, public knowledge after, right, we went out, and we wrote, like, hey here are our founding principles, here's why we're doing this, here's who we want to kind of bring along on this journey. Because any sufficiently complicated, like open source project or standards making practice, which is what this effectively is, it's saying like, hey, we're gonna create a standard, we want input from a lot of stakeholders. And it'd be very easy for those stakeholders to come by and say, well here's what i think about your ideas and i'm gonna leave a bunch of notes and then i'm gonna walk away and let you do all of it but by going out and saying like look here's the exact you know principles here's what we actually kind of hold true here's what we believe here's how we think this is going to impact all this other stuff here's like the problem statement that we're actually trying to you know a lot of this is in many ways, like good business, right? Like, you need to know your problem statement, you know your audience, you know your customer, da 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 By coming out and publishing all that and being very transparent about the process, I think that attracted a lot of people that were already in the space that saw an opportunity. Because we weren't, you know, doing this just blindly. We really were kind of focusing on this existing need, this, um, this problem that even the people that, you know, the data dogs of the world or the Splunks of the world saw, like, yeah, actually it is kind of annoying that we can't have this stuff built in. Uh, it causes problems for us. It causes problems for our customers. By having that transparency and openness from the beginning, it showed demonstrated to all these, you know, existing vendors and people that are already in space that we... One, we meant what we were saying. Two, it showed that we had sufficient buy in from the existing community to actually do what we wanted to do. And three, it demonstrated that there was enough support to actually, like, we had that third party in there, right? We had um, a mediator from the Cloud Native, Cloud Native Computing Foundation. You know, we had this roadmap to sustainable governance. Um, to a sustainable project. So it felt safe for people to come in and say, okay, I'll work on this too, right? I was going to go over here and do something else, but I'm going to come with you because maybe I don't a hundred percent agree with everything you think or the vision as it stands. Maybe I want this other thing, but the structure that you're building seems like a safe place to come in and start. And maybe later I can, you know, I'm going to have the opportunity to get my stuff into.
1: This will be interesting. Switching into scalability, right? Given observability, open telemetry, all the things you've mentioned so far, uh, was this built to scale efficiently from day one, or have you and the team been fighting this as you've grown?
0: There's both the Lightstep answer and the Open Telemetry answer. I think from the Lightstep answer, you know, it was built to scale, but. I think we've had to. We spent a lot of time as a you know engineering team, kind of not necessarily um, undoing things that have been done, but making putting our destiny in our own hand, in our own hands a bit more by rebuilding parts of the product to make it more scalable. Even if like the basic idea is scalable, it's like ah, well, there were shortcuts or there were things that like we did one way, but. You know, now that we have more people in time, we can do the other way. From the open telemetry perspective, we actually, one of the first things we did, um, I think and if you go back and look, I might be like an author on this, was we started out by saying we wanted a scalable way to have people suggest improvements. Um, and one of my former colleagues, her name is Isabel Rettelmeyer, But she proposed this thing that we call an OTEP, which is an Open Telemetry Enhancement Protocol. And really we were taking something that already existed, you know, in other sort of open source projects and we were riffing on it. But what was strange? most of these other projects had done this like much later in life. They had said, you know, hey, I have this core, and I think we could have done, and we could have done this too, I want to point out. Like we could have said, we have this core group of like five or six people that are very committed to this and they could have gone off into a corner for a year and come out with like 1.0 or you know 1 or 0.9 or something that was almost done that had a lot more like work done on it like that was further progressed than where we actually got over that same amount of time but it would have just been like what those five or six people thought what we did instead was from like a very early point of the project, we said, no, we're going to have a formal process for like suggesting improvements. We're going to have a formal governance structure with elections and, you know, bylaws and, and stuff like that. And we didn't do it because we thought it was going to make us go faster necessarily. Cause I, I think everyone kind of had some level of idea that, you know, by adding in governance and by adding in process, you you do make things happen in a more deliberative way. But we did it because we knew that if we didn't, then we were going to be a year or two staring down the barrel of, like, some crises that could have been prevented if we had thought about those questions, if we had implemented ways to scale gracefully as a project earlier. Um, I do think that it's it is a bit of a double-edged sword. Like, there's things that we did that I would probably... Do differently like we over prepared in terms of how in sort of the setup of like individual projects inside this overarching project in a way that has been confusing to end users because certain cross-cutting things like who's do- whose responsibility is documentation well we said well it's everyone's responsibility everyone has to do their own documentation well that's great but when someone that never heard about it before right like maybe one of these listeners is going to say oh well this sounds neat let me go to the website for a long time, there was like no documentation on the website. There was a link to GitHub you had to go, and then everyone had documentation in a different format. Maybe it was in a completely different place entirely. There was no consistency in how you found any of that. So that was a really bad experience for end users. Um, and in some ways, that's a result of being ready to scale. Now, I think that what we kind of corrected on this is saying like, okay, well, Let's let's find these things through experimentation. Let's find these parts that should be a bit more centralized, and you know, and bring them back closer to vest. So if you go right now, there's a much better sort of documentation story, and you can go and you have this consistent get started, you know, all this sort of stuff that makes it easier for someone that is new to come in and gets pick it up. Uh, but it wasn't that way for a while, and I, yeah, I do think that having. Figuring out the right balance of like process and how heavy or light do you want it to be, and, and sticking with it, uh, was really important to the health of the project. I would say that it definitely helped us scale more quickly, and uh, more like when we did get that rush of people, and have gotten the rush of people over the years, because it's happened a few times, we've been better prepared for it because we did plan ahead.
1: As you step out on the balcony, and you look across all that you've built as a team. What are you most proud of, Austin?
0: Honestly, I am most proud of the people that are involved in this community. I have had the absolute pleasure to work with some incredibly bright people. I have both at LightStep and as part of OpenTelemetry and as as a member of Cloud Native Computing Foundation I've gotten to work with some real luminaries. I met some people that uh, make me look like an idiot, which isn't really that hard, I guess. The a deprecating humor line for you. Self-deprecating humor line. But seriously, like, I think it really is the people, right? Like, all of the cool stuff, good example, we just shipped something at LightStep called Notebooks, right? And it's this really, Cool new way of analyzing what's going on in your system, and letting you kind of have a journal almost of like, "Hey, here's this problem," and I'm going and being able to like note down like exactly what it is in a really collaborative way with people on your team, and then get in extra insights into it by analyzing that data. You know, we can tell you like, "Okay, well, hey, you're looking at this problem over here. Um, maybe this is why, right?" And then you can share that notebook with someone and say, like, I think this might be what's going on. And because we're integrating these traces and metrics from different parts of your system, that means that someone that isn't even, like, necessarily connected to the problem is gonna have the same level of access is gonna have the same access to this troubleshooting data as someone that's maybe been at the company a while that knows all the ins and outs of the system. And the journey, like, the watching that kind of develop and watching people at Lightstep step work together to bring that feature to life was really inspiring to me because it wasn't easy it was actually very challenging it was very like anything you know any good anything good involves some level of struggle right like nothing nothing in life is easy um but the way that you know it's a big project it spans a lot of different teams it spans a lot of different areas of functionality you know, it's something where there was a lot of stress around making sure that people hit milestones and all this this other uh, good stuff. But you know, you didn't see anyone. There was no explosions. No one blew up each other. Um, you know, we we took we leveraged the fact that we have just really amazing, excellent people working together to kind of solve this core problem, and doing it with the vision of, like, well, you know, it's not just, like, a checkbox feature. It's not just, you know, like, we need to do this. It's how do we actually make something different, something differentiated, something better, something unique, something that actually kind of gets to that core vision, like I was saying, of, what you know, how do I help someone understand what changed, right? So seeing... There's one person specifically that uh, I worked with him when he was an intern at the company. And I remember And essentially he, he's kind of came back, he got hired from his internship and it's really cool to see how he's grown. And, you know, before was doing, you know, this fun intern project about profiling um, performance of like one little tiny part of this whole thing. And now he's like leading these big initiatives, uh, to something I can't really talk about right now, but like is really leading this really cool big initiative right now internally. That is going to like again just be this huge development in how people use Lightstep, and that's really cool to see, right? Like that's something that I I think has. It's one reason I don't like to job hop. Um, because I think if you're going like from one place to the other every year, every two years or whatever, then it's easy to kind of lose out on like watching your coworkers grow um, to watching your peers kind of develop. And so that's, that's been a really neat thing about having the sort of perspective, the longer term perspective of LightStep is seeing that individual growth.
1: Well, let's flip the script a little bit. So tell me about a mistake that you guys made and, and how you and your team responded to it.
0: So I think a good example of a mistake is um, there's an open telemetry story for you. We had a unreasonably aggressive timeline, let's say um, in sort of laying out a roadmap, for like here's what the first year of this is going to look like. And in a lot of ways, I, I believe the reason that it was so aggressive is actually because I violated the thing I just said, right? Like, it's, we had two people kind of go off into a corner for a little while, for like a month, and work on sort of a prototype of what this would look like, this merged project would look like. And so we said, oh, well, if it only took them, like, they that's like 80% of the way there, right? And if you've done anything in projects before, it's like, rule, you know, that last 20% 20 takes 80% of the time and we should have been more cognizant of sort of the risk that we had taken on as a project by saying, oh, yeah, we're pretty sure it won't, you know, blah, 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 it won't be this huge huge lift to get the rest of it through. We course corrected on that I think in an interesting way because normally You know, there's a lot of different ways I think you can course correct on that. Like if you're talking about like a private company, you know, it's one thing because you can just, you can say what you want to say and you can try to assuage customers and make them happy. With an open source product, it's a little bit different because what we really had to deal with was like the reputational risk of, well, you said that you were going to do X and now you're kind of backing out on that. What does that mean for all the other projections? What does that mean for the future of the project? How much can we trust that any future roadmap is going to, you know, be adhered to? So one of the things that we did to help ameliorate that problem was we started to go a lot more in-depth and be a lot more... um, Like not picky choosy. like We started to be a lot more detail-oriented, I would say, in communicating status. So an example of this is now, if you kind of go look at a support matrix. It used to be, we had a very simple support matrix. It was very kind of for end users. Uh, it was like, there's three things on it, and what's the status of those three things for each language? So now if you go look at that same support matrix, there is about 120 I want to say different things in each language and each of them has like you know only two statuses which is good but they're still very very fine grained very detailed and what we learned through this experience was that at different Life's like different stages of the product, right? You're the actual most important customer to communicate status to is going to be different. So at the time we were actually, over, we were pivoting more towards like the idea of like the end user developer is like, oh, they're the person that cares about this the most. But that wasn't necessarily the case. The people that cared about it the most was really more the vendors and the, the integrators who wanted to come in and support this project. Uh, either with time or by integrating into their own thing. So they needed that detail that we weren't giving them. We changed, we provided them the detail. They were happier, they were able to better understand not only like what is the actual maturity of this, but also how can I help push it to the next level because now they have a very easy to understand, or for them, easy to kind of drill down and say like, oh, well this feature isn't done yet in my language, so I can just go like work on that. Um, And then as the product matures, we were going to get better at saying like, okay, well now it's at the point where we need to flip the script back and communicate this better to sort of like an end user developer that doesn't care about all the nuance. They just want to know, like if I drop this in and go, how's it going to, is it going to work? And so there's kind of this two tiered uh, level of detail that we can provide. So that I think was a good it was an important lesson. Something I'm certainly going to take away into the future um, is just being really, really confident about like, who are you communicating to and are they the right person?
1: So, okay, so for LightStep, what does the future look like for the product and for your team?
0: We got acquired uh, by ServiceNow last year and we're part of the ServiceNow family. Uh, it's been exciting, it's been interesting. You know. The nice thing about ServiceNow is they have been very, very—I uh, don't—cautious isn't the right word. Like we are still light step, right? What being part of ServiceNow means is now we have access to a lot more stability and a lot, more, and, and a lot of, you know, and a, and a huge commitment to what we are trying to do. Um, so it's been able to help us accelerate hiring and growth. And they haven't, you know, it's not like they're coming in and saying, like, okay, we're gonna pick you apart for all the little details and then turn you into a, you know what we are. It's like, no, there's something special and unique about you. We wanna give you a place to grow and become successful on your own, right? So I think the future is really there it's a mutually beneficial relationship because I think ServiceNow, when you think about you know them. They're involved in a lot of the same people. They're, they're, they're already talking to, or they're already at the places we want to be in terms of customers that have these big complex strategic systems they need to understand. And they're so deeply embedded on sort of the IT side, which is interesting because you know LightStep really focuses on these strategic applications. And by having Lightsup and ServiceNow together, there's a real story we can start to tell about having not just insight into like, what is my application doing? What is my shopping cart or my API doing? But like, how's the actual business going, right? Like how are, how is all this stuff kind of converting into some sort of business goal or objective? Um, When I talk about a, you know, when I talk about a service, I usually mean like some code that's running in Kubernetes, uh, Kubernetes cluster somewhere. When service now talks about a service, they're talking about, you know, an actual business process, right? Something, you know, an approval chain or a um, an HR function or a piece of physical, you know, equipment somewhere. So being able to bridge that and and provide really deep insights into kind of the whole picture of like what's changing in the business, um, what's how is things being utilized, where are we able to be more efficient. Um, where are prob- figuring out what problems are occurring before, you know, being able to kind of get that smoke alarm going real fast, rather than having to kind of wait and see how things are ha- are shaking out. Like that's a really cool opportunity that you know we really didn't have when we were still dependent. So I'm excited to see uh, that matura- maturation going. I'm also excited, you know, we just launched a new product called uh, Lights Up Incident Response which again, this is something that it, it makes sense to kind of be together, right? Like we, we've been doing monitoring and observability, understand what's going on your system. Well, once you see that something happens, like, what are you going to do? So now we have an incident response tool as well that will help you do things like set on call rotations and, you know, alert people, you know, send them a text message when something is metaphorically on fire. And that's something, you know, being able to bring that to kind of market in the amount of time we did, you know, that wouldn't be possible without ServiceNow. So I think it's a really great mutually beneficial uh, partnership so far. And I expect that we will continue to deepen, you know, to broaden the reach of the LightStep platform and sort of deepen our integrations with uh, the ServiceNow product line and the ServiceNow platform and really just, you know, it's something going from like scrappy little startup to, um, big company. It's, it's an exciting journey for everyone, I think. And I'm interested to see where it all winds up.
1: Well, last question, Austin. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person? Having being part of Lightstep and a part of this journey and into service now, what would you tell them? You
0: know, I think I would tell them that the most important thing, like beyond passion, beyond drive, beyond you know listening to feedback, all I, there are people that are smarter than me but, and that are more convincing than me that can tell you all of that right about what's important in business or in life. What I value, what I think is, you know, makes the difference between something that is great and something that is okay is the story about, not like, not just the personal journey, not just like, how did you get here from where you are? But like, what is the story of what you're trying to do? Like, how does this touch people's lives for lack of a better term? When I first came to LightStep, like, I knew within 10 minutes of talking to someone that this was what I wanted to be because I had spent like the past however many years getting woken up in the middle of the night and trying to understand what had changed in some system. And having to just go through these horrible manual processes, having to look through needles in a haystack getting woken up because someone's phone didn't work in Jakarta, you know, and having to like bridge off to God knows how many different telephone companies to figure out that, Oh, they landed a plane with five people that have blackberries, but only four could actually work cause of how limited the capacity out there was like, I understood how complex systems were and all those times that I woke woken up, the times that I had, had to like stop doing what I was doing, like in my personal life and go and do something and then do work at times where I shouldn't have been doing work. I should have been sleeping or playing with my cat or having a date or whatever, right? Like, it all, that, that sucked. So to me, the story of LightStep was this solves that problem. This gives you t- your time back. Uh, this helps you understand these changes so that you can like both prevent them and resolve them quicker. And that's an easy story to tell, right? That's a story that I think resonates with people because everyone has a story like that. That's what you should focus on, right? Figure out that story, figure out who you're, who you're doing stuff for and, and go from there.
1: That's great advice. Well, Austin, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the story, the creation story and your story of Lightstep.
0: Thanks for having me. It was great. Great chat.
1: And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.comslash code story for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.